welcome to the History of the Klondike Gold Rush, Episode 18, How to Mine Gold Stampeder Style. I'm Pascal Halliday. And I'm Keith Halliday. Last episode, we covered the glamour of Klondike Kate on the stage at the Palace Grand Theater in Dawson City, the Paris of the North. Today we're going to look at how the men, and they were indeed mostly men in the mines in those days, got the gold they threw on the stage at Kate's feet. Nowadays, despite what you sometimes see in sensational reality TV shows, placer gold mining around Dawson City is a sophisticated craft with operators drawing on decades of experience. In the 1980s, the Canadian National Research Council even funded a study using radioactive trace elements to help engineers assess the effectiveness of various loose box configurations, riffle spacing, and pay gravel feed rates. Back in 1898, though, it was a much more rough-and-ready affair. We've gone back to three accounts of mining techniques written at the time. One is by Canadian government surveyor William Ogilvie. He devotes a whole chapter of his memoirs to the topic, even comparing and contrasting the methods used by the early prospectors to how Stampeders did it at the height of the rush. The second account is from our old friend Tappan Adney. He spent a lot of time out on the creeks, interviewing miners and making notes. Finally, there's the account by John Leonard in his entertaining book, The Gold Fields of the Klondike, Fortune Seeker's Guide to the Yukon Region of Alaska and British America. It was published in 1897 and includes some great drawings of mining equipment from the time. The gold we've been talking about throughout this podcast is placer gold. Think of small bits of gold eroded at some point in the distant past off a hard rock mineral deposit and now sitting in the bottom of a stream bed. Note that the bottom of the stream bed may be a current stream today or an ancient stream now dry and located partway up some hill often called a bench claim. The basic principles of placer mining are simple and go back to ancient times. Ogilvy puts it this way, gold is 19 times heavier than water and 8 times heavier than rock. Even though placer gold isn't 100% pure, it's still so heavy that if you apply some water and shake the dirt it's hidden in, the gold will sink to the bottom. After doing this for a while, you stop, called cleanup, and extract the gold. The classic photos of the gold rush show prospectors with gold pans squatting on the edge of the water. However, you wouldn't really mine your claim with a pan. Sloshing a shovel full of gravel around in your pan with water until the gold sinks to the bottom and the gravel and sand has been washed over the side is fine for prospecting or testing some gravel to see if there's any gold present, but that takes far too long to process a large pile of potential pay dirt. The early miners in the Yukon mostly stayed on river bars or the banks of streams. They panned to find rich gravel, then generally used rockers to get the gold. The typical rocker is essentially a wooden box, say three to four feet long and a foot or two feet wide, sitting on rockers like a rocking chair. Check out our website, klondikegoldrush.org, where we have some photos of rockers and other techniques we'll describe later, as well as some of the sketches from John Leonard's book. With a rocker, you shovel dirt, hopefully pay dirt, in the top along with some water. Often miners had a long-handled dipper, a two-quart or two-liter tin can on a stick, to add the water on top. Inside, there's a screen to get rid of oversized rocks and debris. Then the sand and gravel fall onto an inclined tray at the bottom. Here, there are riffles and some kind of matting or fabric for the gold to get caught in as the rocker goes back and forth and the water moves the gravel along the tray. Then... You rock it until the gravel works its way out of the opening on one end of the rocker, and the gold is settled into the riffles and matting. The rocker is much more efficient than panning, and also economical on water. 
You could even operate one over a tank and reuse the water. This is why you sometimes see them used in areas without much water, like New Mexico. Ogilvy says a pair of men could use a rocker to process one and a half to four cubic yards of dirt a day. That compares to one yard, about 100 pans according to Adney, if you panned hard in a long day. One pair of miners made around $100 a day, a pretty impressive sum, using a rocker on the banks of the Stewart River. They must have had pretty rich gravel. In the Klondike, sluice boxes were common. These used the same principles, but in a bigger way. If you have enough water, you can process a very large amount of gravel, many times what a rocker could do, and at the same time capturing more of the gold in your pay dirt. You need what they called a head, that is, some vertical distance for the water to run from upstream through the sluice box and come out the other end. This often involved making a pond or situating your sluice box in the right place along the creek. Sometimes, if on a flat stretch of creek, miners with adjacent claims might build a small dam or pond together to share the work. As for the sluice boxes themselves, think of long wooden boxes, say 12 feet long, a foot and a half wide and a foot deep usually with multiple sections in a row, with water flowing continuously through them. Old-timers advised on making your sluice box as wide as the biggest tree you could find, since you didn't want to have the bottom made of multiple planks. The boxes were made to taper so one could feed into the next one. Leonard says the optimal incline was generally one inch for every eight or 16 inches of horizontal distance, but Ogilvy calls for one inch every four to five feet. That's a 5 to 7 foot drop over a 30 foot sluice box, which shows how you either needed a steep creek bed or to build a pond and piping system. Along the bottom of the sluice box, you had riffles, usually made of wooden slats or eventually angle iron and matting, often coconut matting back in the day, to capture the gold. At the very bottom, you might have a final box or two, often called tail boxes. The gravel gets one more work over here before becoming what they call tailings. Once constructed, as the water poured steadily into the higher end of your chain of sluice boxes, you stood at the top and shoveled in the gravel. You would stop the water to clean up perhaps once a week, or even once a day if you had a rich claim. If the gold was very fine, you would use mercury to collect it. Mercury and gold have an affinity and bond together so that they can be easily extracted. Then Adney says you either squeeze out the mercury through a fine cloth, or you burn it off— Obviously, caution is required since mercury fumes can be highly poisonous. The toxicity of mercury wasn't fully understood at the time, but the technique was widely used. Scientists studying tree rings in Dawson City recently confirmed very high levels of mercury going back to the gold rush. The ability of sluice boxes to process so much gravel raises the question, where do you get it from? This was a problem in the Yukon, especially around the Klondike, because so much of the dirt was permafrost, that is, permanently frozen. John Leonard describes the problem, quote, The ground is frozen from the bedrock to the surface in the winter and never thaws out to any great depth. The surface is covered with glacial mud, upon which there is a thick mass of moss. The top of the ground is so thickly felted with this moss that the latter acts as an insulation, preventing the warm rays of the 24-hour sun from thawing the ground even in the summer. The top layer annoyed the miners intensely. It was one-third sediment and two-thirds water, so thawing it with fire didn't work very well at all. Blasting it was expensive, and powder was always in a short supply, so that left you with pick and shovel. Once you got the top layer of moss and muck off, you could use fire more effectively. You'd build a fire, say eight feet long and two feet wide, and let it burn for six to eight hours. The heat would go down and thaw perhaps six inches of the gravel. 
Annoyingly, most of the heat from your fire goes up, not down. And then you could shovel this into your pile for later sluicing. Then you would build another fire and repeat and repeat. As you burned the nearby trees, each fire required dragging the wood a little bit farther. As we described in an early episode on 40 Mile, one brilliant mind even figured out how to get to the bottom of a frozen creek to get the pay dirt. In the winter, they chipped away at the thick ice on the creek until they almost, but not quite, got to liquid water. Then they would let the ice freeze deeper and chip away some more. Eventually, you would have constructed an ice shaft to the bottom of the creek where often the richest gravel lay. The best time to do all this thawing ground was in the winter. The summer days, with their fast-running water, were better spent sluicing. So the winter was spent cutting firewood, thawing gravel, shoveling gravel, or, as the shaft got deeper, lifting buckets of gravel up out of the shaft, and going down into the shaft to set new fires. Once you got down to bedrock, where the richest pay dirt was usually found, and which might be at the bottom of a 20- or 40-foot-deep frozen shaft, you would then start thawing a horizontal passage along the pay streak. Now you have to drag logs horizontally through your frozen tunnel, then buckets of wet, recently thawed gravel horizontally back the other direction, before having your partner hoist them up to the surface with a rope and some kind of homemade arm-operated winch. This is called drifting or drift mining. It was also hard to control how much gravel your fire thawed. The heat tended to go up and thaw the ceiling, which could cause low-value gravel to thaw and drop into your tunnel, which you then had to take out and pile up. You could chop through the ice and get some water to do some panning and see how rich your gravel was, but essentially, you did a whole winter of work making a huge pile of gravel and didn't find out until the summer how much gold you actually had. Our website, klondikegoldrush.org, has some photos of miners driving shafts and moving gravel. It doesn't look like a lot of fun. The website also has a sketch of claim number nine on El Dorado Creek from John Leonard's book. The claim was 500 feet long along the creek. After a few feet of muck, there was 16 feet of frozen gravel and sand. This had 50 cents to $2 of gold per pan. Then there was four feet of frozen gravel, which was lower and had more gold, $2 to $5 per pan. Then a foot and a half of less rich gravel, just one and a quarter dollars per pan. And then the real pay dirt, just above bedrock. This was one and a half feet of fine black sand, yielding a staggering $50 per pan. This, obviously, was where you would start drifting horizontally. While not fun, drifting could be highly lucrative. Leonard says just the shaft on that claim yielded $40,000 of gold, or almost 100 years of salary for the average working man in the United States at the time. The gold from the drifting was on top of that. Drifting was such arduous work that everyone was trying to think of a better method. Gasoline torches were tried, but gasoline was rare and expensive and didn't actually thaw that much gravel. The solution was steam. Ogilvy says you would get lengths of iron pipe, called points, a half inch wide and five or six feet long. You put a steel plug in one end, then drill a couple of one-eighth inch holes in the side near the plug. Then you connected the point to a steam boiler with rubber hoses and drove the points into the frozen gravel. This was much more effective. You could thaw more gravel and control where you thawed more precisely with much less wood than the old method required. Ogilvy quantifies how much more efficient these methods were. At the beginning, there had to be at least 10 cents of gold in a pan to make mining worthwhile. With steam points, better sluice boxes, riffles and matting, plus better hoisting machinery, you could now make money mining dirt that had only a quarter as much gold per pan. That is to say, the miners were four times more efficient. 
Our website has a fantastic photo of Quiche, or Skookum Jim, on his claim on Bonanza Creek, surrounded by sluice boxes, steam engines, and all this equipment needed to run an efficient operation at the time. What's also striking about that photo and others from the time is how the miners up and down Bonanza Creek have cut down nearly every tree, reshaping the creek and the landscape, and creating a harsh new landscape dominated by steam engine smokestacks, long sluice boxes, and tall conical piles of gravel waiting to be sluiced. And that was just a start. In a few years, even more industrialized and efficient methods came to the Klondike. There was hydraulic mining, or hydraulicking, which involved using huge and powerful jets of water to wash a gravel hillside down to be sluiced. Water power could also be used to lift gravel up out of shafts or deeper mines. This, of course, required vast amounts of water. Ogilvy refers with some amazement to a consortium spending several million dollars to bring water a long distance to hydraulically mine a Klondike hillside. The days of the independent miner with nothing but a pan and some fortitude what Adney calls poor man's mining, were clearly numbered. An even bigger revolution came with industrial dredging, as we mentioned in our episode about Joe Boyle. Dredges are where the Industrial Revolution connected with the Klondike. Even early and relatively inefficient dredges were miles ahead of the techniques we've told you about so far. Ogilvy reports that Cache sold his claim, number one above Discovery, for $60,000, or over $1.5 million in today's money, to a dredge consortium. This was after he had already mined it actively for six years, showing that even after years of taking out rich pay dirt, there was still plenty left to make dredging profitable. Dredge number four, which opened a few years after this, has been restored and is a must-visit historic site next time you're in Dawson City. A few statistics from Parks Canada will give you the idea. It was the largest wooden-hulled, bucket-lined dredge in North America. Think of a large wooden barge, about two-thirds the size of a football field. Powerful electrical engines drawing power from a company hydroelectric plant some 50 kilometers away moved a long chain of 72 steel buckets, each carrying over one-half a cubic yard of dirt. The dredge floated in an artificial pond covering some part of the valley, and the bucket line could be lowered almost 50 feet below water level, or 17 feet above it if needed to attack a hillside being hydraulic. The buckets dumped gravel into an extensive sluice box system inside the dredge. The buckets moved at a rate of 22 buckets per minute, meaning that it took about 20 seconds to move as much gravel as the most productive two-man rocker team moved in a day. Amazingly, dredge number four kept operating until 1960, six decades after the gold rush wrapped up itself, and is estimated to have produced nine tons, yes, tons of gold during its lifetime. One day, on Hunker Creek, Bob Henderson's old stomping grounds, this behemoth produced 800 ounces in a single day. When you visit Dawson City, you can still see the huge piles of tailings left by the dredges stretching for miles across the landscape. But at the height of the Klondike gold rush, The dredges were still a future vision. As the old photos show, in 1898, it took an army of miners and grueling manual work with shovel, axe, and bucket to get the gold that had been trapped for eons in the frozen gravel of the Klondike. If you like this episode, please tell a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you really like the episode, please go to our website, which also has links and maps about this episode, and make a donation. That's klondikegoldrush.org. Even a few bucks helps cover the costs of equipment and hosting. We didn't do this podcast to get rich, but as an old miner might say, it would be nice to make enough to get our grub steak back. 